I want to have you turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 6. And I want to read for you a basis for what I'd like to say this morning, though for those of you who are visitors, this would not be normally the way we would handle the Scripture. I'm doing an exposition of the book of Revelation but I want to take a text, and then I want to share with you something that God has been doing in my life, a personal insight that the Lord has worked. Those of you who are Sunday school teachers know that you are the greatest benefactors from your preparation and your teaching. How many of you would agree with that? We get more from our own teaching and the preparation, and that's really true. And you can imagine if that's true for you as a Sunday school teacher, how true that is for me as a minister of the Word of God. So in, in lieu of an exposition, I want to go back to an idea in chapter 6. Chapter 6, verse 9, I want to ask the question with you about something important. When he opened the fifth seal, in the opening of the seals, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the Word of God and for the testimony which they held. And they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And a white robe was given to each of them, and it was said to them that they should rest a little while longer, until both the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who would be killed, yet in the future, in the tribulation period, who would be killed as they were till that number was completed. I have a little grandson who is eight years old. And I talked to him this week and he starts the third grade. I can hardly believe Christian starts the third grade. That's my oldest grandchild. When he was three, we were, his daddy was studying at Oxford and we were driving him over to his other grandparents. Grandparents to be, get used to that. You have to share your blessings and your joys and your challenges with the other grandparents. And that's just the way it is. And as we were driving, I had a mouthful of bubble gum. And I was saying to him, Christian, let me show you some of my tricks. And I blew a humongous bubble that burst on my face while I was driving down I-40. I could see it all now. Baptist pastor has wreck with bubble in face. Grandson hurt. I thought I'd better do it one more time and stop. And I blew the bubble and I said, do you like my tricks? And he looked at me and he said, oh yes, Grandpa, I love your Twix. Have you got some more Twix you can show me? In fact, Grandpa, show me all your twigs. like to know all your twigs. And I pondered that the remainder of that trip halfway from here to Norfolk where we were to meet his other grandparents. And I thought how good it would be if I could somehow take everything I've learned and pack it into that little three-year-old mind. Wouldn't that be great? Wouldn't that be good if I could just... And I pondered, you know, I think a little weird sometimes. 
I wonder what would it be like if the book of Hebrews said, it is appointed unto man three times to die, and after this the judgment, instead of once. Have you ever thought of that? You never thought of that. I thought of that. What it were appointed unto man three times to die, you had three cracks, you took all the knowledge you had from the first crack, and you brought it into the second, and all of the knowledge you had of the second crack, and brought it into the third, and then came the judgment. That's not the way it is, is it, Jack? Appointed unto man only once. You only have one time. The older I get, the, real, the faster I realize that's going. But in the past 10 years, I have experienced a lot of things, some of which I cannot even tell. I mean, we've seen, I want to tell you folks, it comes at you like a cascade. Four children through college and graduate school, all in 10 years. Four children married, seven grandchildren, some real genuine staff challenges that I take personally because I'm a pastor, some uh, ravage that came from a tornado that passed over our house and left us living in one room for weeks, a debilitating heart attack, heart surgery, a year to recover, two years to recover. And I've been pondering, I've had a lot of time to ponder all of that wrapped up into 10 years. And I've been studying that. I've been thinking about that. I've been, it's like turning a light bulb just a little bit at a time, trying to get more light on what God is doing in your life. I've been a Christian for 45 years. I've been preaching for 35 years. But I would say after a, an in-depth study of Revelation 6, in the last 10 days, it's like as I was turning that light bulb on, suddenly something made contact, and the light came on. And this morning, I want to show you one of my twicks. A twick that God just, it just happened I was reading, I was studying, I was praying, and suddenly a light came on. As if to say, that's what I've been thinking and studying and praying. And after hearing hundreds and hundreds and probably thousands of people's stories in my office or in homes, it's like a light came on this week. And here's how it happened, and I want to share it with you. And that's my message to you this morning. I was studying those tribulation martyrs in the first part of the tribulation under the altar, crying out, how long, O God, how long until you avenge our blood? Now remember, they're in the tribulation. Four seals have already been opened. You remember the white seal of the Antichrist, the red seal of war, the black seal of pestilence, the pale green chloros seal of death. And the fifth one is, when that seal is opened, something's going on related to the judgment of God. And those martyrs are under the altar, under the protection. We talked about that last week. But what struck me was, their question is the same question that I ask. I hope you understand and you're not offended. I share my victories with you as well as my goofs. 
I tell you some of the dumb things I do. Not because I revel in them, but because I want you to know that if God can give me victory, don't put me up on, I, I wrestle with things as you do. And I wrestle with the same things you do. And I wrestle with that question. How long, God? If I could tell you all the times I've wrestled with that question, just like you. When your daughter-in-law, Martha, has cancer, and she's got two little children, and you say, Lord, I don't understand this. Everybody in this room has been through that. If you're a sincere Christian, you've been through that. And if you haven't, you will. Amen? You will. And the question kind of centers around three or four other questions, I think. The question of how long, oh God, can be rephrased. God, this doesn't seem fair. I serve you. I do what you ask me to do, and this is what happens. And those of you who are studying Job, you can see this reflected in Job. Why do you seem unfair? Or sometimes we ask it another way. The how long question is asked, God, why are you silent? Why don't you speak up, God, and tell me what you want? And sometimes the how long question that the tribulation martyrs asked is asked in another way. God, why are you inactive? Why do you seem to be playing hide and seek with me? Where are you, God? Isn't that in all of this question of the tribulation martyrs? We don't understand. We're we responded to the kingdom message in the tribulation period, they're saying, and you're pouring out your judgment, and we've been slain and tucked away in heaven under the altar. They're crying out the question, when will your judgment be finished? And that's a question that I've asked myself. All of those questions I've asked myself. And as I poured over that question in this text and read and read and studied and pondered and prayed, suddenly it was like the light bulb had made contact and a brilliant light filled the room. Those are spiritual serendipities, aren't they, Chris? You've had them. And they're wonderful to experience with God. It wasn't an emotional thing. It was an intellectual light. It was an explanation light. And here's what happened. I've come to the conclusion that there is an assumptive faith. That when we come to Jesus Christ, we begin to make basic assumptions about God. Sometimes they're based on the scripture and fact, and sometimes they aren't. We make assumptions, we have expectations about how God is going to work in our lives. And we read something in the Bible and we say, oh, God did it this way. And we begin to make the assumption that God will always work that way. And then we read, God did this, this way. And we begin to make an assumption, well, God will always work that way. And those are only assumptions. All of us have assumptions 
about reality and life. All of us have assumptions that don't work out. Sometimes we have unfulfilled expectations over our husband, our wives. In fact, one of the prime reasons for marriage breakup is we don't know how to deal with unfulfilled expectations or assumptions about the other person. Isn't that true? And how many of us have watched as people came to Jesus with assumptions and expectations about how God was going to work. And then when he didn't work that way, they turned their back on him and walked away. And every one of you can point to people in this church right now like that. I don't understand why God didn't do it that way. And they've turned their back. I was praying through the directory the other day, and on one page I found six people that I have not seen. And in every instance it was because they started out with an expectation, an assumption about God. And when God didn't work according to their assumption, they turned their back on him and walked away. And therein lies much of the problems. Because when we, when we operate with these assumptions about God... And then God doesn't work according to that assumption. We get disillusioned with God. And remember, disillusionment is the child of illusion. Disillusionment is the child of illusion. And if we have an illusory concept about how God ought to work in our lives... We set ourselves up to be disillusioned. And I'm convinced that that is a problem, if you understand this, in more Christians' lives than I care to name this morning. If we allow certain illusions about God that are, may not be biblical, then we set ourselves up for disappointment and disillusionment and then blame God, and we suffer three times. First, we suffer the trial or the pain or whatever it is we're going through. Then next, we suffer the disillusionment with God, the disappointment. Why didn't God do it? Why didn't he answer? Why did he hide himself? And then we suffer the third time when we turn our back on God because we're disillusioned and we wind up trying to run life by ourselves. And that's a terrible spot in life. You see, once we do that, then we wind up with a wounded faith. We wind up with a profound disappointment and disillusionment about faith, about the Christian life. You see, an atheist doesn't have this problem. Because an atheist has no expectations about God. If you expect nothing and then you receive nothing, then you're out nothing. But what happens when I surrender my life to Jesus Christ, I automatically expect certain things back from him. 
And sometimes what I expect back from him is grounded in the truth of Scripture, and sometimes it's grounded in a profoundly distorted view of God that I got out of my childhood or I got from other preachers, and it's not really a biblical way to look at God. And so I have these illusions. God, I've given you my life. You ought to do this for me. Atheist doesn't have that problem, see? Only a Christian who commits his life to Jesus has that problem. Now, I ask you a question. How do you deal with people in your life who have unrealistic expectations of you? I want to ask you another question. How do you deal with people when you have unrealistic and unfulfilled expectations of them? And that leads to the question, I wonder how God deals with us when we have these assumptions that are really illusions about how God works. I mean, I was raised in a time in the 40s and 50s when everybody who gave their testimony in church, anybody who was brought in to give his testimony in church, had this horrible background. He shot and killed, murdered 10 people. Or he'd been a bank robber. And I thought I had to go out and sin in order to have a testimony. That's an illusion about the kind of people that God uses. There are all kinds of illusions about God out there. You and I need to go back and ask ourselves, what are our expectations of God? And that leads me to the question, how does God deal with me when I have profoundly distorted illusions about how God ought to work in my life when I'm in trouble or when I'm sick or when I don't have an answer or when I don't understand life? Now stay with me. Don't lose me. How does God deal with me? How does God keep his promises when everything is dark and black and I cannot find my way and like the tribulation saints, I am crying out, how long, oh God, why are you unfair? Why are you quiet? Why are you hiding from me? Why are you playing hide and seek when I desperately need help? And the answer is I must go back to my assumptions about God and make sure that they're biblical, that I am not operating on an illusion about what God owes me or what God ought to do. And when I get my assumptions about God straightened out, then my expectations of what God will do are realistic and I am satisfied and contented with Him. Are you listening to what I say? This is extremely important. Maybe you've never wrestled with it, but I want to tell you, when I saw that, when I came to that, it was just like a brilliant floodlight had come on into my life. Now, I want to show you four ways that God works. There are four ways. And watch this unfold now. The first way God works is through divine deliverance. It's divine deliverance. <laughs> It's perhaps the greatest example is Exodus 14. Turn back to Exodus 14. And there it is. When the children of Israel have been in Egypt, how many years, Sunday school teachers, how many years have they been down there in Egypt? 400 years. 
crying out the same thing, the very same thing that the tribulation martyrs are crying out. How long are you going to leave us in Egypt? How long do we have to make bricks? How long do we have to be slaves? How long? Why do you leave us here? God, this isn't fair. Lord, where are you? God, you're silent. God, why don't you do something? Why are you playing hide and seek with us? Same question. Very same question for 400 years. And the scripture says that in verse 13, when the people... Verse 11, they said to Moses, because there were no graves in Egypt, have you taken us away to die in the wilderness? Why have you so dealt with us to bring us up out of Egypt? <laughs> Is not this the word that we told you in Egypt? Don't you love people like that? They say, I told you, Moses. I told you. I warned you it was going to happen. Here they are. We got the mountains on this side, the mountains on that side. We got the Egyptian army on this side and the sea on this side. All four sides are covered. We're going to die. And watch what God does. This is what I call divine deliverance. Sometimes God works this way. Moses said, verse 13, Do not be afraid. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you will see again no more. And what happens? The Bible says in verse 16, Lift up your rod, Moses. Stretch out your hand, and the children of Israel will go on dry ground through the midst of the sea. And God did a miracle. This is the divine deliverance way. Sometimes God works that way. He just walled the water up, and the people walked on dry land. And sometimes that's the way God deals with us. Sometimes that is God's method. It is the divine deliverance. And the prophets and the psalmists keep going back to this as a great miracle. And they keep saying, yes, yes. That's what God did. But now listen to me. God didn't always owe divine deliverance to the children of Israel. Because he did it for them doesn't mean he will do it for you. In this method, God does everything. I mean, he takes his power and walls up the water and says, now march through, I've made a provision for you. And sometimes God does that. And by the way, I believe God can do that anytime he wants. Amen? I believe he still can. But don't make an assumption about God that he will always do a miracle for you. And that God owes you that kind of an experience. See, there's the problem right there. I've got friends who see miracles in everything. By noon, they've had seven miracles. They drive downtown and find a parking place. It's a miracle. Everything's a miracle. Sometimes I think the church is full of God-spoiled brats. They think God has to do everything miraculously for them. And I'm here to tell you, if that's your illusion, you are ready for a profound disappointment and disillusionment. God owes you nothing. See, I've got friends who are Calvinists, and they're at one end of the spectrum, and they think God does everything. All the world's a stage, and we're the players. God's written the script. God's made the plans. God made the, the wardrobes. God's made everything. And we, all we do is we just act it out. And everything we act out, God made us do it. And it's all planned, and God knows, and God, and that's it. It's all done. And then I got friends at the other end of the spectrum, and they think, you know, he wound it up. He put us on the stage. He said, go to it. Wear anything you want. Say anything you want. It's all up to you. And they're at the other end. They think everything is up to me. And then there are those in the middle 
who always believe God wants to do a miracle, and the only reason God doesn't do a miracle in every situation is either because of sin or lack of faith. Name it, claim it. That's it. Well, I got it. Got me a parking place. They walk into a clothing store and happen to see a size 44 long on sale, 98.97. God did a miracle. He saved that suit for me. They see miracles in everything. Exodus 14 happens 13 times a day. If you are set up that way, you are in for a profound discipline. That was Elijah's problem. Elijah went on top of the mountain and God sent down far from heaven. And then when Jezebel chases him, he, he's worried, he's scared to death and wonders why God doesn't just zap again. See, God doesn't always work the same way. And if you think he does, you are set up for a profound disappointment with God. That's the divine deliverance way. As a matter of fact, if you please, there were hundreds and hundreds of years at different times in the Bible when God did no recorded miracle, mind you. There was no miracle at all. Why? do we think he should always do a miracle for us? There's a second way God works. That is what I call not the divine deliverance method, but the divine cooperation method. There's no miracle, but God comes alongside and helps us. He doesn't do everything for us, but he comes alongside and helps us. And uh, a good example of that is in Exodus 3. Moses has been down in the uh, uh, wilderness keeping the flock, messing with those lousy, dirty, filthy sheep. And uh, he is crying out the same thing as the tribulation martyrs. He says, how long, Lord? How long? How long are you going to leave me in this wilderness? Where are you, God? Why are you silent? Why are you not active? Why are you not doing this and this and this? And all of a sudden, God arrests his attention and says, uh, I want you to go. I'm going to get your, your, your people free. But I'll tell you, you've got to go. Oh, no, why don't you just do it for us? That's actually what Moses is really asking, isn't he? When God says in verse 7, I've seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt. And what does he say in verse 7? I have heard their what, class? What is it? I heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sorrows and I've come down to deliver. But I'm not going to do it all for you, Moses. You've got to do something. And when you yield... I will go with you. And Moses answered, Who am I? In verse 11, that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the children of Israel out of Egypt. And what did God say in verse 12? This is what I call the divine cooperation method. In verse 12, he said, I will certainly what, class? What does it say? Be with you. I will be with you. You go and I'll be with you. I'll be right alongside you. And lots of times that's the way God works. He doesn't do a miracle. He expects you to take a step and then he comes alongside you and that's the way he delivers you. That's the way he works out your problem. That's the way he works in your grief. That's the way he works when you are crying out. Where are you, God? Why are you silent? Why are you hiding? God says, I'm not hiding. I'm here. I'm going with you. See, the first 40 years, Moses lived 120 years. Right, kids? 
First 40 years, Moses thought he was somebody. The first 40 years, he was really somebody. He went to the best prep school in, uh, in Egypt. He, went to, he lived in the house of Pharaoh's daughter. I mean, he had everything he wanted, right? Everything he wanted. The second 40 years he was in the wilderness, he found out he was a nobody. <laughs> the first 40, he's somebody. Second, he's nobody. But in the last 40, he found out what God can do with, with a somebody who realizes he is a nobody. And God came alongside and says, you go and I'll go with you. You go and I'll go with you. And sometimes that's the way God works in our lives. He doesn't just perform the great miracle. The great commission, he said, all power is given to me in heaven and earth. And at the end, he said, I will be with you. And there is the divine cooperation method. I'll go with you. But there's a third way that God works in our lives. It's what I call the divine infusion. It is the divine infusion. There's no miracle. There's no special power. It probably is represented by what God did in Paul's life in 2 Corinthians 12 as much as anything. In 2 Corinthians 12, Paul says, I had a thorn and uh, God, I asked God to remove the thorn. In fact, in verse 8, he says, Concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. I asked God to take the thorn. I asked God to remove whatever that physical infirmity was. And God said, no, my grace is sufficient. I will not practice divine deliverance. I will not practice divine cooperation. I will practice divine infusion. I will put my grace in you and fill you with grace to take every day, to take whatever you have to face. I will do something beautiful in your life. And that's what God did. He filled him with grace. And he filled him with daily grace. Now, sometimes you might not like that method. God doesn't always work that way. But if you understand the different ways he works, then you can adjust your expectations. I mean, it takes a lot, doesn't it, for God to keep pouring into these frail human bodies daily grace so we can stand up under a physical temptation or a physical problem? And so there's the divine infusion method. Paul asked, how long? How long do I have to put up with this? How long do I have this physical infirmity? And God said, no, there are only three things God can do with anybody's problem in this building this morning. Only three things. He can take the problem from you, he can take you from the problem, or he can give you the grace to go through it. That's the way God works. And in this instance, God gave him grace. I'll never forget when Amy went to uh, England for a semester of study. And she arrived in London, and the first night she called on the phone crying, weeping. Daddy, it's awful. I want to come home. Got to come home now. I've got to come home. This is awful. I don't want to stay. Now, I had some choices, like God. And like God, I don't always practice the same method. Do you, as a parent? The divine deliverance method would have been saying, take your credit card, honey. You buy yourself a ticket and get home by tomorrow. We're not going to have you upset over there. I'll take care of things. I could have done that. Right? I could have done it. Or the second method, I could have said, um, 
I'm going to come over there. I'm going to get on a plane tomorrow and go there so I can be with you and be alongside and help you make the adjustment. I could have done that. I didn't do it, but I could have. Or I could have taken the third method and I could have said, honey, I love you. I'm going to be praying for you that God will give you the strength. And I'll call you in a couple of days and see how you're doing. And I'll keep up with you and make sure that you get through this okay. And that's what I did. And sometimes that's the way God works in our lives. There are times when I was anxious for my heartbeat to come down after the surgery and, and uh, all of that was going on. God, where are you? I want divine deliverance. Oh, God, just give me a brand new heart. You can do it. I believe you can. God didn't owe me anything. Or I could have said, Lord, you give me some kind of special power. And God said, no, I just want you flat on your bed. I want you to shut up for a while and listen to me. And that's what he said. You stay right where you are. And that's what this method is about, the divine infusion. Stay right where you are, but I'll pour grace into you. He's done that to you. The fourth method is what I call divine patience. Divine patience. There's no miracle. There's no special power. There's no special grace. He just takes his hand off you. He just takes his hand off Hey, that is exactly what happened in the Babylonian captivity. God said, I protected you long enough. I've delivered you long enough. I am not going to protect you anymore. You're going to be carried into captivity. And when I'm done judging, then I will bring you back. And that's exactly what God did in that instance. That's exactly what God did. And they cried in captivity, how long? How long? How long? And God said, oh, I'm not done yet. You stay a little longer. <laughs> Stay a little longer till, till uh, I accomplish whatever I, else I need to do. It's like he withdrew. He didn't abandon, but they thought he had. He didn't leave them there, but they thought he had. How many of you have ever been there? You thought, well, God just, he's done with me. He's abandoned me. All he's done is withdraw, momentarily withdraw. But God had something else he wanted to do. How long? Yes, that's what the martyrs were asking. How long? I'm going to ask you this morning to give up two dangerous assumptions about God. Assumption number one is because God worked this way once, is that he'll always work that way. Give that up. And you will be better able to negotiate your relationship with the Father. And secondly, because God always worked immediately, he'll always work immediately again. That's not the way God works. But I can tell you this, I know this much about his methods. His methods are always according to his purpose. His methods are always according to his nature. And his methods are always according to his knowledge. He knows us. And you can count on that. And the times I've wrestled with submission to the will of God, what I've wrestled, what I've really wrestled with has been dealing with what I expected God to do or thought God should do. And submission became much easier when I recognized I was working on some assumptions that God ought to work a certain way that were not proper biblical assumptions. They had become false assumptions and illusions about how God worked. Can I ask you to turn to Isaiah chapter 40? 
and note something insightful that I read in one of Haddon Robinson's messages. In Isaiah chapter 40, the great promise of verse 31 comes out of a how long question. It comes out of a how long question in verse 27. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my just claim is passed over by my God? Why do you say that? Why do you say, God, where are you? Why are you silent? Why are you hiding? Why are you unfair? He said, have you not known? Have you not heard the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, neither faints nor is weary? There is no searching of his understanding. He gives power to the weak and to those who have no might, he increases strength. What, the way God works, even you shall faint and be weary and the young men shall utterly fall. But now watch this. Here's a promise from God. Those who wait on the Lord shall exchange their strength, renew their strength. And then he promises three things. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Now, literary people look at that and say, my, how dumb that is for Isaiah to mix his metaphors like that. Uh, what's the purpose? But you know, I think there's, uh, there's an insight here. These represent the three ways, the first three ways that God deals with us. And the fourth way is represented in verse 1 of chapter 41. Those who wait on the Lord. Sometimes God practices divine deliverance and gives us a miracle. And we fly. We mount up with wings like eagles and we fly. And it's a spectacular way God resolves our problem or our need. Sometimes God works that way. But sometimes they shall run and not be weary. And that's the second way. God keeps us running, but he runs alongside of us. That's divine cooperation. And sometimes we just walk. But as we walk through our problem, he is infusing. That's the divine infusion method. He puts strength in us so that we can walk and not faint. There it is, verse 31. And sometimes with his people, he just withdraws and keeps silence and lets the people renew their strength so that on their own they can come near and be gathered up. And the rest of chapter 41, the first half, explains how God works that way. So here's a promise. God doesn't always work the same way Sometimes he practices divine deliverance and you, he, he does a miracle in your life and you mount up with wings like eagles. Sometimes he practices divine cooperation and you run and he's right there with you. And sometimes he practices divine infusion. He doesn't do a miracle. He doesn't give you special power. He just gives you daily, daily grace to walk but not faint. I don't know how God is working in your life right now. I want to tell you this. My answer to the tribulation martyrs who ask how long, my answer to Israel, my answer to Paul, my answer to Moses, my answer to myself is this. And my answer to you, God does not always work the same way. But God does not forget you if you're his child. And finally, God does not 
lie to you. You can count on it. He doesn't always work the same way, but he will not forget you. And he does not lie to you. And when you surrender your life to him and get into the scripture and discover how God works, ask the Lord to build proper understanding of how he works so you don't operate under any illusions about what God needs to do or owes you in your life. He works according to his purpose and his nature and his knowledge. But though he doesn't work the same way, he will not forget you. And I absolutely promise you, he does not lie. You can count on that. Amen and amen. Let's stand for prayer. Father in heaven, I thank you for who you are. I thank you for how you work. I thank you for the journey that we have to go through to bring us to an understanding of who you are. But, oh God, if this simple little truth can save somebody from disillusionment and disappointment, can save someone from turning his back or her back on you, I pray that you will work it in their lives to create a new understanding of how you work and what you do. And Father, those who have never been saved, who have never trusted their life to you, give them the courage to make a commitment on the basis that you do not lie. And if they will confess with their mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in their heart that you have raised him from the dead, which you promised, they shall be saved and you do not lie in that. And because of that, we trust you with everything we have and everything we are. You do not lie to us and we love you for that. And we thank you for who you are in Jesus' name. Amen.